All the possibilities that arose with 19th century American railroads seemed magnified in the transcontinentals, which came to epitomize progress, nationalism, and civilization itself. But to understand the significance of these railroads on the 150th anniversary of the completion of the Pacific Railroad, we need to look at what they collectively achieved and what they failed to achieve. They remade the continent. This was not necessarily always a good thing. Richard White is Margaret Byrne Professor of American History at Stanford. He's the author of Railroaded, the Transcontinentals and the Making of Modern America, and most recently, The Republic for Which It Stands, United States During Reconstruction and the Gilded Age, which is part of the Oxford History of the United States. He's been a recipient of the Guggenheim Fellowship, MacArthur Fellowship, received the Mellon Distinguished Achievement Award, and he's in Logan to give the Mormon uh, Arrington Mormon History Lecture. That's this evening, 7 o'clock. Uh, in the historic Logan Tabernacle. And uh, so we're going to talk about this. The title of the talk, What the Railroad Will Bring, the Promise and Reality of the Transcontinental uh, Railroads. And uh, Professor White, thanks so much for joining me. It's good to be here. Uh, It's great to have you in studio here. Um, So maybe we could start with the popular uh, conception uh, in which there is reality, right? Um, Let me quote from you from the introduction to your book. Um, the popular conception is that the West is the homeland of the American future. The American West is where people go to succeed, not to fail. Um, and the railroad is is really bound up in that. Yeah, the, the standard story of the American West in, after the Civil War is the story of the railroad, that uh, the great achievement of American technology, American industry, is the completion of the Pacific Railway and the other transcontinentals that follow. They open up the West, and uh, they make the United States a very different place. And there's a lot of truth to that. Um, the United States is going to be a very different place by 1900 than it had been in 1865. But what you forget when you do that is that it's a different place because these railroads went bankrupt, um, that the West is settled much more quickly than the previous parts of the United States, but population flows into them and population flows out of them, and that there was an incredible economic, social, and environmental cost to building the railroads ahead of the time where anybody actually needed those railroads. Mm. Uh, You say in your book, uh, the transcontinentals created modernity as much by their failure as by their success. And you've outlined just uh, some bullet points uh, right there. Uh, so this, what was your, how did you get into this? I I guess, uh, preface this by, by saying you're, uh, in some ways, raining on the parade, right? Yeah, I didn't intend to rain on the parade. I mean, I got into it basically because I was feeling guilty. I I won a MacArthur grant, and the MacArthur grants, nobody in the world deserves them. You're just given the money. You're not promising to do anything. And like most people who get them, they think, I'm not worthy of this. And I thought, well, I've got to do a big project, and I have the money to do a big project. And so I thought, what's really interested me is what happens with corporations in the 19th century West. That the, it's, a, it's a place that's supposedly been the domain of individuals, but when you look at it, it's It's really been dominated by large corporations from the 1860s down to the present day. And so when I thought about doing large corporations, I thought, well, what are the large corporations of the 19th century West? And of course, it was the railroads. And that's what got me interested. And the more research I did, the more I realized I knew very little about the railroads and that much of the material I was reading about the railroads 
was wrong, but at the same time, the counter to that was all I was doing was reiterating what people feared about the railroads in the 19th century, and those fears were justified. Uh, and there were reformers, right? There were, oh, yeah. in part, in some ways, the, that that reform movement has kind of been blotted out a little bit. It has been. It's been as if opposition to the railroads until the populists didn't exist. And there, there are two kinds of reformers. There are um, a series of people who thought this is just a really bad idea. I mean, why are we doing this? And among those are going to be um, people who would now consider on the left, but also businessmen. I mean, one of the things we forget about the railroads is anybody who had any experience running a railroad would not touch these things. Why is it that we have the big four who are essentially successful shopkeepers in Sacramento building a railroad? Why do we have the Union Pacific falling into the hands of men who basically are frauds and are out to milk the railroad for all it's worth? And the reason is is that nobody who knew anything about railroads thought these things would succeed. The other one is that they were afraid, and the favorite word of the 19th century is that what they were creating was monopolies. Once they're built, you have no choice but to use them, and they're going to have a dangerous amount of social control. Mm. Um, in some ways, to looking at the corporation and, and the role of government, which is bound up very tightly here, uh, we go back to the, what, the 20s and 30s when states got heavily involved in, in some of these projects. Yeah. Um, but, what we're going to have is an odd backlash. The 1820s and 30s in the United States, the, the governments invested heavily in and built canals, and it was a disaster. States went bankrupt for the first time in American history. And so a lot of the states, particularly east of the Mississippi, where laws were passed refusing the state permission to grant subsidies to private corporations, to just stay out of it. Um, but those laws did not apply to the newer states coming in um, west of the Mississippi, and they didn't apply to the federal government. So we repeat the cycle again of heavy federal subsidies and significant state subsidies to private corporations to build infrastructure. Mm. Now, the canal is a good example. Uh, you said that the companies went bankrupt. Um, the canal itself, uh, I, I think, expanded economic opportunities, right? They do expand economic opportunities. I mean, the the difficulty we have is that the argument made in the 19th century, okay, the corporations go bankrupt, but the railroads are still there, the people win. Well, think about this in terms of your house. If, if you built a house in the middle of nowhere, and in fact nobody really wants to live in it, and you know that in 30 or 40 years somebody will want to live in it, are you going to pay all of the upkeep, all of the things that's necessary to keep that house intact? Why not just build the house when you need it? Railroads rust. The rails rust and have to be replaced. The bridges rot and have to be replaced. And as long as they are not really necessary to the functioning of the economy and actually can be a drain on the economy, then that is a bad investment. And so it's not that some railroads weren't needed. It's just these railroads weren't needed. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting point. I want to get into that. Before we do, uh, some popular misconceptions. I, uh, I guess I thought once the golden spike was driven, uh, here in Utah, of course, we just had the big celebration, that uh, you could get on a train in uh, New York, say, and, and uh, travel to San Francisco. 
Well, a passenger can get on a train in New York and travel to San Francisco. There are going to be many transfers on the way. And the problem is it would be best to do this in the summertime, not in the wintertime. One of the things that happens for the first three years of the transcontinentals is the trains get stuck in the snow. Um, mm. Nobody's going anywhere. But most of these railroads are not really built to carry passengers. Passengers go on them. They're freight railroads. American railroads have always been freight railroads. And the problem is with freight railroads is that's not how a freight railroad works, is that uh, you load a boxcar, it's going to run for an increment of maybe 100 miles and stop and go into a railroad yard until another train is put together to carry it another 100 miles. And the result is that you can't just simply calculate how long it takes to get across the country by taking the miles per hour and then um, using that in the number of miles traveled. Instead, you have to think of how long these cars are sitting. So that even into the 1880s, 1890s, it can be quicker to put something on a ship in San Francisco and send it to New York, even going over the Panama Isthmus, and it will get there more quickly than it will on a railroad. Mm. Uh, so the, a lot of complications. Uh, you write in your book about uh, just a logistical nightmare for a uh, planner for for a product planning how to how to get the product to, to just about anywhere. Yeah, you have no idea how long it's going to take to get your um, product to market. And especially if you're a merchant ordering products, you have no idea when it's going to arrive. This is an incredibly unreliable transportation system. What they'll do in the late 19th century, and again, I was so naive, they invest fast freight lines. I always thought a fast freight line, when I first started looking at this, is a train that went really fast. But that's not what it does. What they say is we will put this on a train and it won't have the delays in the yards. It will move no faster than any other freight. But you're not going to spend three days in Reno, um, seven days in Ogden, uh, a week in the yards in Chicago. We will push you through all the way, for which you will pay extra. What the railroads were supposed to do, or people believed they would do in the beginning, they would finally do. But, of course, you're going to have to pay far more money to get them to do that. Mm. By the way, you mentioned uh, snow. Snow had closed the tracks for weeks on end. How did they solve that problem? (laughs) It took a very long time. Mm. I mean, essentially what they'll have, and you can see photographs of this in the Sierras, and you'll also see them in the Rocky Mountains, is they invent these giant snow-clearing plows, which are giant wheels which will spin it aside, but even those aren't enough. For the unemployed, one of the things you could always count on in winter for finding employment was shoveling out railroad tracks. In big snowstorms, it was a combination of technology and just sheer human muscle power that would clear the roads. They also redesigned the roads. Those people old enough as me and even people who still travel the railroads can remember snow fences to keep snow from blowing um, onto the tracks. They also realized that when you make railroad cuts that you're cutting through a ridge so you don't have to go up and down, which makes a lot of sense in terms of energy expended. doesn't make a lot of sense when they all fill up with snow and pack in. So they have to redesign the roads. There's a lot they have to do. The weather is always a problem for railroads. So part of the solution was you just get guys with shovels out there? Part of the solution is you get guys with shovels. In the end, the most modern technologies usually come down to the most primitive kinds of things human beings can do. Yeah, that's wow. Yeah, so I guess the help with unemployment. Uh, I did see a picture in the the book. Uh, There's several locomotives uh, pushing a snowplow. Right. 
I guess that's one way to do it. That's one way to do it because these snowplows, um, there's a lot of snow. The Sierras, when you're, when you're looking at 12, 13, 14, 15 feet of snow, and they have to be cleared, one locomotive isn't going to be powerful enough. And also in going over the mountains, what the railroads will often do is they need multiple locomotives to make the large grades. Yeah. So there'll be places where they always put multiple locomotives on to get these uphill. Uh, what do they do today? Same thing. Same same thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. so, so plow on the front of the Yeah, and what they've done is they're also trying to um, – They've over the centuries, they've perfected the routes so that the major goal in designing a railroad is you keep it flat. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that's what railroad engineering amounts to. You want it to go f- on a flat line for as long as possible and then go up a grade and go on another flat line. Interesting. Yeah, there's some things you don't think about, right? Yeah. Um, you have the myth, which includes truth, yeah. uh, but uh, a lot of other factors. That's yeah, th- There's no denying that Americans are immensely proud of it because it, it was a great technical achievement. But the problem is now you've done the technical achievement in 1869, and you think, now what? Yeah. And a lot of it had to be rebuilt. Right. Um, it was built badly, but it was built, and they got it done pretty quickly. Let's take another break, or, or a break. Um, and uh, when we come back, I want to talk, get into uh, talking about uh, some of these key factors, uh, social being one of them. Uh, you say in your book, and we'll treat this after the break, um, Professor, that the railroads weren't responding to a large settlement demand. They, in fact, created it. So a a big propaganda effort. uh, Mm -hmm. And and then that uh, disrupted. And uh, then there's there's an interesting parallel, some factors between the railroad and the Internet. Mm-hmm. And uh, you you lived and taught in Seattle and and now in Palo Alto, so there are instant parallels which you've lived in those places. Yeah, I had a sense of deja vu a yeah. lot of the time. Uh, so we'll talk about uh, those things and more uh, after this break. Shalina Kennedy burst onto Broadway with energy, ambition, and most importantly, a killer voice. She morphed into Carol King in the show Beautiful, the Carol King Musical. Now you'll hear her perform a live song from the brand new musical, The Band's Visit. It's coming up on cue from PRI Public Radio International. This afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, Lael, what's the deal with appetizers? You know, Jen, appetizers are those tasty little bites that whet your appetite for the main meal. Ah, so it's like our UPR segment, Bread and Butter. Tasty little radio bites about cooking, eating, and all the ingredients in between. We should invite the listeners to brunch. Good idea. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. for Bread and Butter, your locally sourced appetizer to the splendid table. Now there's a satisfying meal and all on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking uh, with uh, Professor uh, Richard White. He's the Margaret Byrne Professor of American History at Stanford, author of the book Railroaded, The Transcontinentals and Making of Modern America. And he's giving the Arrington Mormon History Lecture titled What the Railroad Will Bring, the Promise and Reality of Transcontinental Railroads. Before we get back into our conversation, uh, just to remind you that we're in the last day of our member drive. And uh, we are some $20,000 short of our $50,000 goal. We've been put within sight of this goal by a great day yesterday. If we have another great day today, we can do this. Uh, We just chip away at this one pledge at a time. Uh, Whatever you can uh, 
can uh, contribute will be much appreciated and uh, and very valuable. Uh, this is listener-supported radio, and uh, we depend on you for a large portion of the budget. Conversations like this are brought to you uh, by by you, and so in that way, it's a very much a community effort. Um, to help you uh, to, to get there, the first $3,500 of pledges today will be matched and doubled. That'll bring in $7,000 to UPR. So thanks uh, to Sonia Manuel DuPont and Ryan DuPont. They have offered this dollar-for-dollar match up to $3,500. And uh, Sonia Manuel DuPont is US, in USU's College of Education and Human Services. She's a speech-language pathology associate professor. Ryan DuPont is professor of civil and environmental engineering at USU, as well as research associate at the Utah Water Research Laboratory, head of the Utah Division of Environmental uh, Engineering. They've uh, put together their money. Thanks so much to them that uh, you pledge $20, $40 comes to UPR. You pledge $100, $200 comes to UPR, and so on and so forth, up to $3,500. So the pledge drive ends when we hit zero, counting down from 20000 that Seems intimidating. I, I guess I should come clean and say it is intimidating. Um, but not if we work together. Your pledge right now, perhaps an extra gift will help. If you're a potential new member to Utah Public Radio, we'd love to have you on board as well. Here's how to reach us. UPR.org. 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 Or you can call 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. And uh, on UPR.org, you can look at the large array of thank you gifts. We'd love to thank you in some way at certain levels. Uh, your pledge right now will certainly help. UPR.org or 800-826-1495. We return now to our conversation with uh, Professor Richard White. Um, so, uh, I mentioned, uh, before the break, uh, professor, uh, this interesting, uh, factor, we sometimes think that, uh, the, there was a, a, a huge demand for settlement in, in this part of the West, which was then, uh, satisfied by the arrival of the railroad. And you're saying that it was the opposite, in fact. Yeah. One of the interesting things about the expansion of the railroads, this transcontinental railroad, is that parts of the West grew more slowly after the completion of the railroad than before. Um, California had been the fastest growing state in the far West. Kansas and Minnesota grow much more quickly than California does after the completion of the transcontinental in 1870. Nevada actually lost population after the transcontinental comes through. Really? Um and one of the things is that for large parts of the West, there are people on the West Coast, there are people expanding into what they um, used to call the middle border up to the 98th, the 100th meridian. But there are relatively few people besides Indian peoples um, in between the 100th meridian and the Sierra and Nevada. And the railroads are financed partially through loans, but partially through land grants. And these land grants are worthless to them unless they can get people on them. They want money by selling them, but mostly they want farmers on them to provide crops, to provide traffic, because a railroad with nothing to haul is is worthless. And so they go out of their way to advertise it. I mean, people use water metaphors about the settlement of the West, that supposedly there's going to be this pressure from population, just a tsunami of landless people coming into the West to get farms. 
But if that's the case, then what the railroads did make no sense. The railroads in the states advertise heavily. They go out of their way to make land as accessible as possible. They're trying to recruit people. They're trying to persuade people. And in this, they're going to be largely successful in certain areas. But the problem is they're bringing in people, particularly west of the 100th meridian, where farming is not going to be successful. And so what we get is the railroads pushing people in. It's, it's like Instead of a tsunami, it's more like a fire hose, and the population flows along the railroad lines. And as population flows in, it's okay during wet years and dry years, it flows back out again. So the settlement of the West in between 1870 and 1900 is going to be a very mixed bag, in many ways, much more a failure than a success. Uh, so, the, and that, there's another thing about the myth of the American West is we don't think about the flow back out. No, we don't. They, you know, wagons east, we don't, we don't think about that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the trouble with a lot of American calculations and, and other places in the world, too. Um, we'll, we'll talk about um, economic benefits of the railroads. We don't talk about the economic costs. We talk about population flowing in. We don't think about people leaving and flowing back out. Um, that you have to count both to get an accurate assessment of what goes on. Uh, and that in much of the West, what you're going to find is population is going to stagnate, and you're also going to find that incomes are actually going to decline. I want to pause this right right here. Um, so you're, you're doing some correction to the myth, right? The myth is powerful, right? It's, it's how we organize our, our <laughs> conception of ourselves. Uh, what's, the, what's the value in the, in the, the reality check? <laughs> the reality check is, is going to be critical, but it's also, as a historian, one of the things I've come to have a great respect for is the power of myth. What myth is is a form of storytelling. It's, it's this kind of storytelling which reassures people that the way they live their lives and their most fundamental beliefs are correct. It also tends to be anti-historical in the sense that people believe they're just eternal truths that are no matter where you are, these things are going to be true. The railroads are going to be a study about how technology can transform the world, how it opens up for individuals a set of benefits and possibilities which didn't exist before. That's not totally false. But if that's all you believe, you are heading for disaster. And that what you have to do is take a look at these things. Okay, this is what people said about it and what people say about it now. Why don't we try to take a look at what actually happens? And the reason this is important, the reason you have to do it, is this is our duty as citizens about every single thing. That, that it's not that Americans aren't skeptical. Um, you know, God knows we've become incredibly skeptical skeptical about all kinds of things, but there is such a thing that we can tell, if not absolute truth from absolute falsehood, we can tend to say things are more true than not. And one of the things that history allows you to do is you can't test the future, but you certainly can test the past. And you can certainly say, if these kinds of stories were told then and were told now and they weren't true then, why would they be true now? That's a good segue to um, bringing in the parallels between the railroad and the Internet. And you, you write in your book, Railroaded, um, that uh, in the immediate aftermath of 2007-2008, uh, the, you know, the Great Recession, um, I think a lot of people had some of these lessons in mind, but, but that's in the 10 or 15 years that have intervened. Those are start, started some, in some circles being blotted out, blurred, yeah, right? Yeah. They, this, these things happen. These things happen. It's um, there's always going to be a contest between 
those people who say, be careful, and those people who say, not to worry. And very often, to be careful in, in the immediate aftermath of a disaster wins. But as it fades further and further behind, as many people no longer even remember what happened, then it's, you know, not to worry. That mm. the, the absolute truths take over. This mm. is the way things are going to be. And with the Internet, the Internet is, has such failures not once but twice. And the parallels to me are first this belief in a technology which is going to change everything. Technologies change things. They don't change everything. The second is going to be that it's going to open up infinite possibilities for individuals, that now there's going to be the possibility for individuals to travel, to move in the case of the railroads, to gain information without having it filtered in case of the Internet. Um, and these promises are then made into utopian promises about what's going to happen. And the third thing, which is becoming more apparent now, is in fact these Technologies are in the hands of very, very large corporations. And it takes a while for people to realize that. Americans love the technologies. Very few Americans would want to do away with the Internet. Very few Americans would want to do away with the railroads. They hate the companies that run the Internet. They see them as monopolies. They hated the railroads. They think them as monopolies. These things are working out in similar ways. And so when we begin to see these structural similarities, then we can begin to make some um, judgments, always being cautious judgments, about what are going to be the consequences of doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit more. I was interested in to read in the book. You lived in Seattle, taught at University of Washington. Now you teach at Stanford. Palo Alto, so two hotbeds of this, our new technology. And then you're studying the new technology of the time. I wonder if you could maybe expand on, on sure. that. It, it, was a very, it was very revealing and very awkward. I mean, one of the things universities professors have to do is um, try to raise money sometimes with alumni groups. And in both Seattle and in Stanford, some of the most influential alumni would be tech executives or tech entrepreneurs. And so I'd have to be on panels with them, and I'd hear them talk. And they talked as if the past no longer mattered, that uh, the Internet, the new technologies had changed everything, that once more we were going to be transformed, that there was uh, a world opening up unto us which would be better than anything we've seen before. And I thought, where did I hear that language before? And I heard that language largely among people promoting the railroads. The railroads had changed everything, that all the old rules were off, that things were just going to be better than they'd ever been before. And I thought something else about it. As I watched them operate, both in Seattle and in um, the Silicon Valley, a lot of these companies failed. But the people who owned them got rich. And I didn't understand how that could happen. I thought the way that you made money in capitalism was that your company turned a profit and the profits made you rich. How do you have companies which lose vast amounts of money and go bankrupt, and yet the people who founded them end up getting rich? I taught it when I was at Stanford at a university funded by railroads which were bailed out by the federal government, which essentially at the end refused to pay back their loans to the federal government and had to be sued. And these people 
made immense fortunes, were some of the most richest, richest people in the 19th century United States. And so then I began to wonder, well, how exactly does this system work? And that became many of the things I looked at in Railroaded. But always around me were the kinds of parallels, the kind of sim similarities between the promises, similarity between the organizations, and the similarity for treating the American public as if they are fools. Mm. Uh, yeah, definite. <laughs> Without leaning too much on politics, there's some parallels, right? And so how does an entrepreneur come off rich while the company he or she founded uh, fails? Well, one of the, you know, you alluded to it, it's the government that gets involved. It's the government that gets involved, and there, there, there are some basic rules, which I think go to um, many of these companies, is that, um, first of all, invest as little of your own money as possible. <laughs> you always operate on other people's money. And secondly is you get subsidies and aid as much as possible. You have the government intervene either not to treat you like other equal companies are being treated or to actively give you a lot of money. And third, you deal with insider dealing, that you before any money goes to stockholders who are paying off debt, it's raked off into subsidiary corporations. It's used for giving yourself insider contracts to make money from the corporation, um, or it is simply siphoned off. So when it turns out that the company, the railroad in this case, cannot pay its debt, you are not left holding the bag. Um, and this is what they excelled at. These are, these are guys who are never operated in this world before. Nobody had. This is the beginning of corporations in the United States. And they're inventing it as they go along. And that many of the tricks that they use seem primitive now, but they're still similar to the kinds of things that are done right now. It's always where people would wonder in the 19th century, how can it be that the workers are losing so much money, that even the investors are losing so much money, that the bondholders are not getting their money back, that the government's not getting its loan repaid, and these guys are fabulously wealthy. What's going on? Mm. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with Richard White. He's a professor at uh, Stanford, the Margaret Byrne Professor of American History author, among other books, of Railroaded, The Transcontinentals and Making of Modern America. He'll be giving the Arrington Mormon History Lecture this evening at 7 o'clock in the historic Logan, Logan Tabernacle, downtown Logan, titled What the Railroad Will Bring, the Promise and Reality of Transcontinental Railroads. Um, so um, and this goes against uh, the, the, the heavy involvement of the government goes against the myth of the West, right? The, the West is supposed to be rugged individuals. Yeah, it, it goes against the general myth that the United States has ever been a country um, that's been a laissez-faire economy. And, you know, my argument and the argument of most historians is laissez-faire has never existed anywhere. The boundaries of an economy are always going to be regulated by a government. Um, the government is going to be involved in the economy in one way or another. To the 19th century, for example, tariffs. Tariffs is a direct government intervention to decide who are going to be winners and who are going to be losers. And you can do it for good public purposes or you can do it to reward some people and punish other people. Um, subsidies to the railroads. The railroads are given loans and those loans are very, very generous. Um, that is a government aid to the railroads. The land grants are going to be government aid to the railroads. But on the other hand, when you look about American settlers, the homesteads are a subsidy to small farmers. Everywhere you look in the West, you see the federal government and state governments being involved. This is Indian country. It's Indian lands. How is it that, in fact, the land is transferred from Indian peoples to white peoples? It's either 
through white people. It's either through um, treaties, which is government intervention and government payments, or it's through warfare, which is a government army which conquers Indians. That there's no place you can turn in the 19th century West where you don't encounter the federal government. And corporations are going to work in partnership with the federal government. Um, I want to get into some of have you tell me some stories of some of these individuals. Um, one, uh, I was fascinated to learn that uh, a, a scion of the Adams family was president of the Union Pacific, Charles Francis Adams. And uh, to, to get us into talking about him a little bit, you have a quote from him in the book where he is essentially saying this is a disruption. This is the, the, the railroads will usher in uh, life like we've never known before. Yeah. Um, Charles Francis Adams is the um, great-grandson and the grandson of presidents. His father had been ambassador, Lincoln's ambassador to Great Britain during the Civil War, had himself run for president. Um, So Adams comes from a distinguished political family. But he makes a decision following the Civil War that the real growth is going to be in railroads. And he starts out as a railroad reformer. He becomes a railroad investor and ends up being president of the Union Pacific. It doesn't end up because after that he actually becomes a historian. But his his time as president of the Union Pacific is the most miserable time in his life. He begins to recognize how these corporations are actually run. He goes in idealistically saying, as you as you accurately quoted him, that this is a transformative technology, that nothing is going to be the same again, that um, the whole way that Americans organize their economy and live their lives is going to be changed by this. And after that, there is a litany of um, grief and woe, which it becomes more and more strident, more and more acerbic. He says these companies are corrupt. The people who run them are ignorant and greedy. Um, they are virtually unmanageable, that most of the disasters they face, they bring on themselves, until finally he is going to be forced out by Jay Gould, the Union Pacific, which he say comes in after one bankruptcy, is on the verge of bankruptcy again, and will go into bankruptcy after he leaves. He comes out utterly disillusioned man. Um, Because there's one thing of looking at these things abstractly when you're outside and actually not just being in the belly of the beast. I mean, Adams was the brain of the beast and he realizes the beast is not working at all as he wished it would work. And he cannot, despite his best efforts, really ever reform the Union Pacific, which he calls the worst school for railroad management that ever existed. Now, that's what Adams says in his letters. If you look at Adams' public statement, you go to listen to him talk to students at Harvard University, appears to be a different man. He's saying that these corporations have just replaced the older entrepreneur. They've replaced the older forms of organization. This is how the future is going to work. That's not really what he believes in running the Union Pacific. So you can't ever take somebody's public statement without going into the letters. And and essentially, that's what I do in Railroaded, and that's what I do in um, as a historian. I read other people's mail. <laughs> I yeah, read what they're really right, saying right. privately, not yeah. just what they're saying publicly. Yeah, that, that, that's always interesting. Uh, to get to know the real person. Um, propaganda was a big part of this. Yeah. It is a big part. It always has been, right? Yeah. Propaganda, it, you, you're, you're 
you're selling a dream. That's what you're doing. You're, you're selling a dream. You're also selling information. I mean, it's one, another one of the things that railroads had in um, common with the Internet, and we're finding this out more and more all the time. What the railroads realize is the money they're going to be made is not necessarily going to be made on a hauling freight or hauling passengers. It's going to be made on financial markets and what their stocks and bonds are going to be worth. And they realize stocks and bonds are going to go up because of information. So the railroads very quickly learn what they have to do is stifle bad news and try to propagate good news. They will become, they do this in two ways. First of all, nobody in their right mind should ever look at a financial report of a 19th century railroad and believe a thing that's in them. Mm. They, they, are, they are fictions. The same time they bring newspapers, they own their own newspapers, they control newspapers, and they have favorite newspaper men, and their goal is, is to influence financial markets. And they're very detailed about this. Collis P. Huntington of the um, Central Pacific and Southern Pacific is quite precise about the news he's going to be letting out why he's letting it out. And Cosby Huntington actually taught me a lot. He taught me how to read 19th century newspapers. Is who is saying this? Why are they saying this? And what can be the possible gain from it? He could care less about the truth value. He looked at what the consequences were going to be. The railroads learn about information very, very quickly. Hmm. Uh, Might there be lessons for today's changing media environment there? I think the lessons are really obvious, (laughs) as you you know from the from the questions yeah. is that a lot of the information that is that is let out both by the federal government and by politicians and um, by corporations is going to be self-interested. I would say, and this might sound naive coming from a historian, I have far more faith today in the public media and the news media than I ever had in 19th century media. The Mm. the, um, ideas behind them are are very, very different. There is an attempt to put a filter on it, um, to try to make evaluate truth claims in it. But in the 19th century, that is not the way the newspapers work. Newspapers were very often owned by political parties or um, subsidized heavily by corporations. There was not until the 20th century going to be much sense where you're getting some attempt to have an even-handed presentation of the news. Mm. Before we go to break, I, uh, I wonder what your, your thought is on this idea of disruption. Um, and the way it's sold. Uh, so railroads, at least in some circles, this was going to totally change life. And there's always or often a utopian dream that's being that's being sold. Again, in the Internet age, mm-hmm. this is going to totally change life, right? There's a utopian factor to this. And then, I guess, uh, some disillusionment. The, the fact remains that the, the big changes, the, und- indisputably. You know, yeah. railroads, Internet, big changes, but... I wonder, you're looking at both of those, what, what lessons should we take from this? Well, I mean, one of the, the lessons you should take is that there is going to be disruption. I mean, technology can change things. There never as much as that people are promising. But you have to look at the disruptors. I mean, one of the things about most people who claim the benefits of disruption, they are going out of their way to insulate themselves against disruption. One of, if the railroads really believed that they were going to be a disruption that was going to be good for everyone, you would have had these guys sharing the risks with everybody else. Everybody who runs these companies, who ma- amasses these vast fortunes in the 19th and 20th century, they are setting themselves apart so that whatever disruption happens, somebody else is going to be left paying the price. So if they really believed in disruption and its value, then they would not be insulating themselves against it. The second thing is, is disruption, disruption really can produce real good. There's 
There's no denying that. But again, there's social benefits and there's social costs. Um, Indian peoples in the 19th century West, this was a disruption that was probably not real good for them. Um, 19th century farmers, it didn't work out real well for them. Workers, it didn't work out real well for them. One of the things that you always have to realize in terms of disruption or anything else in history is we are not in this together. There are going to be people who win and people who lose. And so the claim that something is going to be universally good is a claim historically... You know, outside of the kinds of vaccines that prevented me from getting childhood illnesses and prevent my children and grandchildren, I don't know much that's universally good. We will uh, take another break when we come back. Uh, I'd like to uh, treat at least briefly the uh, effects of the railroad in Utah, the West, yeah. Mormons. Um, and I assume you'll be talking a bit about that uh, tonight yeah. as well. Um, Richard White is Margaret Byrne Professor of American History at Stanford, author of Railroaded, the Transcontinentals and Making of Modern America. Uh, the Arrington Mormon History Lecture is tonight, uh, 7 o'clock, Historic Logan Tabernacle, free and open to the public. Um, and uh, for USU students, this is an Aggie passport experience. And uh, USU students will know what I'm talking about there. <laughs> the title of the talk, What the Railroad Will Bring, the Promise and Reality of Transcontinental Railroads. We'll have more following this. Composer Bejad Ranjbaran says, of all the instruments in the orchestra, this is the voice of wisdom, moderation, and prudence. And it has flair and brilliance as well. Well, here at Concerto, Ranjbaran wrote for the musical voice of wisdom on the next Performance Today from APM. Tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, before we get into our fascinating discussion uh, about the railroad with Professor Richard White, um, or get back to that discussion, a few words about the member drive. This is the last day of the drive, uh, so that's a nice thing. But we are twenty thousand dollars away from our fifty thousand dollar goal. We're a lot further away from that at uh, the beginning of yesterday, so thanks so much. Well, thanks for your response throughout the drive, and thanks for your big response yesterday, getting us closer. Uh, so $20,000 uh, is intimidating, but with your your pledge right now, uh, we can uh, chip away at this, and uh, we all uh, join together. We can reach this goal by the end of the day today. Helping us toward that is a big listener challenge from Sonia Manuel DuPont and Ryan DuPont. Sonia Manuel DuPont is with the College of Education at USU. Ryan DuPont is uh, with the Civil and Environmental Engineering uh, Department, as well as with the Utah Water Research Laboratory. Um, and so if you know them, you can, uh, once you've uh, pledged and had your money doubled, you can tell them that and uh, thank them. 
so what this is, is uh, the first $3,500 worth of pledges today will be matched and doubled. That'll bring in $7,000 total to UPR. That'll help us a lot. Uh, so at this listener-supported uh, station, your support is critical and uh, supports conversations like the ones we have on Access Utah. So I'm very appreciative of your support. Uh, if uh, you are a fall renewal, now is the perfect time to do this. 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upr.org, upr.org. If you're a potential new member to Utah Public Radio, we'd really, really would love to have you on board. Same numbers, 800-826-1495, or go to upr.org. And uh, perhaps you could consider making an, an extra gift. That would really help us. And it'll be doubled, up to $3,500, courtesy of Sonia Manuel DuPont and Ryan DuPont. The number again is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. Or you can go to upr.org, upr.org. And a big thank you. A big thank you if you have done this. Thank you ahead of time if you haven't. Uh, we really, really do appreciate it, and I really do appreciate it, uh, your support for Access Utah. It does make a big difference. Back to our conversation with uh, Professor White. What the Railroad Will Bring is the title of the Arrington Mormon History Lecture tonight, 7 o'clock, Historic Logan Tabernacle, free and open to uh, the public. Uh, so this is the Arrington Mormon History Lecture. Professor, I assume you'll be talking a bit about... Uh, the, the way the railroads impacted uh, the Mormons, yeah, the U- is, Utah area. This is where the railroads met. I mean, Promontory. Yeah, the, promontory, that's right. That's right. Oh, but, but I'm just remembering this. Uh, I, I, I'm neglected to do this. I'll alert you or, or remind you that we have a great uh, audio series, uh, oral history series, uh, called Riding the Rails, and you can find that at upr.org. Uh, so, Professor, this this did. Uh, as you, we mentioned the uh, settlements flowing in and out, and and uh, you know, the, the demand being reversed here. Uh, it's sort of different for the Mormons, right? The Mormons were already here, coming over by wagon. This, I guess, in some ways, facilitated the immigration. It facilitated the immigration, but there's always going to be the irony that the the reason the Mormons came from Utah was to be isolated from the rest of the United States. And one of the things the railroad does is, of course, connect it with the rest of the United States. Now, that connection in terms of what happens later is going to mean that the federal government doesn't have to do what it did during the Mormon War, have the what ended up the disastrous experience of marching armies across the Great Plains. I mean, you not only can have troops here, you can supply it, you can be connected. Utah is at that point going to be largely under the federal thumb in a way that the, um, that the leadership of the church had never really wanted. Economically, what the railroad can do for Utah initially is not much in terms of being a transcontinental. Because Utah really in the 19th century has very little to support to export that's going to be under control of the Mormon church. It's an agricultural state, and the most of its crops are going to be um, consumed locally or regionally. It doesn't export to the east. It can get manufacturers in here, but many of those are going to come from the Pacific coast anyway on the central Pacific. But by and large, there's not a lot of good it can do. The, the place where it is going to facilitate investment is mining, but it's going to be Gentiles. Um, so in many ways, the, the railroad is a very, very mixed bag. Now, it would Brigham Young realizes is there's money to be made here, and there's also a way in which wages can be paid, and that not so much on the Union Pacific and Central Pacific, though some there, but more on the um, Utah Northern and Utah Southern, it's going to be a big investment of um, Mormon money. And it's also going to make Brigham Young a big 
player with the corporation because they realized if, in fact, their junction is going to be in Utah, they want to be on good terms with the Mormon church. And, and one of the things I ran across in the archives was Collis P. Huntington getting ready to send um, Brigham Young unsigned bonds at the time where it looked like he was going to be prosecuted by the federal government and might have to go into exile in Europe. The Southern Pacific was willing to, in effect, finance his living in Europe while he was gone without having it traced back to money in the Mormon church. It would be a railroad subsidy for him. He remained on very good terms with both sets of corporations and, in fact, the church and individual Mormons invested particularly in not only the Union Pacific, but in the, but in the um, regional railroads that fed into them. Just a couple of minutes uh, left, uh, maybe uh, select an, another interesting one of these uh, uh, magnates or anyone else connected to the railroads and then tell me just the two-minute version of, of their story. You know, I mean, one of them that I was most fascinated by was Collis P. Huntington of the Central Pacific, who's not really remembered now, um, but was probably the smartest of all the guys that I was there, the one who understood what was going on. And Huntington was not an honest man, but Huntington was a frank man. So one of the things I learned about railroads was this interesting set of conversations really through letter between Huntington, who lived much of the time in New York, and Leland Stanford, in which Stanford would make a mistake and not understand how the railroad worked and how financing worked and how Huntington would correct him. Um, and the letters had the tone of you idiot most of the time, though they remained more cordial than that. But I realized by my standing in for Leland Stanford, Collis P. Huntington gave me a course in how railroads worked. He gave me, he taught me how important information was. He taught me how important it was that you don't risk your own money. He taught me how important it was that, in fact, when, when, in, when a crisis arrived, you were willing to sacrifice virtually everybody, your bankers, your stockholders, to keep yourself alive. He was absolutely ruthless, but he was really able. So he's the one who really taught me the inside workings of it, much more than many others. There, there are plenty of others. I mean, many of these figures are larger than life, Henry Villard, um, James J. Hill, but it's really Huntington who stands out to me because I, I made use of him and Charles Francis Adams probably more than any other figures in the book. Hmm. These lessons, in some ways unfortunate lessons, are very timely. Yeah. As you were ticking those off, I was thinking, yeah, rip, rip those from the headlines today, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that you think about is that if you think that you as a private investor can go into these corporations and um, – be able to manipulate them or make money, they have knowledge you don't have. They're the insiders. I mean, one of the things it taught me was the value of insider knowledge and how they use it and how ruthlessly they use it. I mean, it's one of the secrets of what happens in corporations. Mm. And in, in fact, they always make sure that they're going to be protected in ways you're not going to be. I mean, the golden parachute today, the ways in which they always come out standing clear from the wreckage. But that's, um, that's something that was established during the 19th century. Fascinating history, and you can hear more about this at the uh, Arrington Mormon History Lecture. That's happening tonight, 7 o'clock, Historic Logan Tabernacle, and that is uh, free and open to the public. Uh, the title of the talk is What the Railroad Will Bring, the Promise and Reality of Transcontinental Railroads. And uh, the uh, speaker, who's been my guest on the program today, is Richard White, Margaret Byrne Professor of American History at, uh, at Stanford uh, University. 
I just mentioned the sponsors of the Mormon Arrington Mormon History Lecture, Spike 150, University Libraries, Smith Pettit Foundation, Utah Division of State History, USU Religious Studies Program, and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Again, that's free and over the public, 7 o'clock tonight, Logan Tabernacle. Professor White, thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. I enjoyed it. And uh, just a word here at the end of the program about the uh, member drive. Uh, thank you so much. We've already taken care of your uh, pledge, your membership. Um, and uh, maybe consider giving an extra gift. That would be much, much appreciated. We are uh, short of our goal. We're chipping away $20,000 today. Uh, that would be a huge day. It's needed to reach our $50,000 goal. But uh, your pledge right now will make a big difference, and we pool our efforts, and we can make this. Helping us to do this are Sonia Manuel DuPont and Ryan DuPont. They have put up $3,500, and so every dollar up to that amount is doubled today. Here's how you uh, participate, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you go to upr.org. And thanks for listening. You are listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.